Before we get into today's episode, we want to quickly tell you about another ESPN podcast, The Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny, where Mina talks all things football with her unique brand of humor and insight. With all the latest NFL news, make sure you're staying up to date with Mina and her friends who join each episode to talk about the biggest NFL storylines. Find the Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcast. Also, relive one of the greatest icons and most successful teams in sports history, Michael Jordan and the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls. Stream the Emmy and NAACP Image Award winning series, The Last Dance, on ESPN+. It's only about championships with T.J. Dillashaw. And listen, the handsome Dean Thomas had something to say last weekend during the fight because we saw the co-main event. We saw those younger guys fighting early in the card. The handsome Dean Thomas then says, I'm saying it loud and clear. Bantamweight is currently the best division in the UFC. And this is not a debate. I am here to tell you, Dean Thomas, for as handsome as you are, for as knowledgeable as you are, I don't agree. I don't agree that it's the most, it's the best division. But I do believe it's very, very good. And when you look at the top five guys, when you look at Piotr Jan, and you look at Aljo, and you look at Dillashaw, and you look at Rob Font, and you look at Jose Aldo, I mean, when you look at those five guys, then you get down to Cody Garbrandt, Marlon Marais, Frankie Edgar, Dominic Cruz, Marab Vili. Listen, Marab is as good as they come, and he's down at 11. When you look at the weight class, it's very, very good. But to make such a bold claim that it is now better than lightweight, that it is now better than, than, than 145 and 170, that's so bold. And I don't agree with Dean Thomas. Very good. But, RC, you can't possibly DC. think that this is the glamour division, the best division in the UFC. DC, it's definitely not the glamour division. I, I don't think that people are clamoring, even as good as Piotr Jan uh, is, are clamoring to see him fight, right? We're, we're, not, we're not letting those guys headline pay-per-views and different things like that. But when you look at the division, it is extremely deep. You got down to the, the 11th ranked fighter, the 12th ranked fighter, and you could see, okay, these are guys who have opportunities to beat some of these top five ranked fighters in the division. I don't think you could say that about every division. My question to you is, if Jan does beat Aljo Sterling, or if he had beaten him the first time, and now we look at the top of that division, and that division goes Piotr Jan, and then it slides right to TJ Dillashaw, do you think people view the bantamweight division differently? Is it the fact that the champion, even though the, the rule said he's supposed to win uh. the fight, is it the fact that the champion isn't a guy that people are clamoring for as we believe, undisputedly, this is the guy that's supposed to have the belt? You know, I got to be honest, man. Piotr Jan was the guy that was winning the fight. You know, and it's hard because I don't want to take anything from Aljo. Aljo did nothing wrong. He got kneed illegally. But Piotr Jan right. was on his way to winning that fight and keeping his title. Um, anytime that happens, it takes a long time. And a lot of title defenses, this is from a guy that knows to establish yourself as the champion of that weight and for people to accept you. So... For Aljamain, he has to win this one against Jan. He has to win this one, and then after he wins, now people may start, they'll, they'll go, okay, guy's the champ. But you, you, you can't, it takes a while, especially if you don't get an opportunity right away, 
he gets an opportunity to fight that guy the first fight back. But here's one thing about why mm. I believe that Dean Thomas may be a little bit off base. We're going out to Abu Dhabi. They're fighting on a UFC fight, right? They're fighting on a numbered UFC fight. But that right. numbered UFC right. fight is not a pay-per-view, right? And when you are mm -hmm. a high-level, high-recognition division, you don't fight for free. And um, I think that is an indication uh. of where the UFC views the Bantamweights right now. But but it can still change, right? 145 was not a division right. before that you thought of as pay-per-view main event guys. But then that was changed with Conor mm -hmm. McGregor. And now Volkanovski and, How and Ortega are going right. to fight for a championship in a pay-per-view. Holloway always fought on a pay-per-view. So I think it's just take it's going to take some time and work for the Bantamweights to be viewed in that regard. Um, right now, we still see them seen as a smaller division where they may be on free television. Yeah, well, you know, it just it just when you get that guy in the division that people are excited to see. When, when when he fights, it starts to bring the pay-per-views. It starts to bring the money. And you hey, that's like what Jerry Maguire said, man. If you want to show me that you're the top <laughs> division in the UFC, show me the money. But when you get to these fights and you talked a little bit about TJ Dillashaw and the injuries that he sustained throughout his training camp, I think that's a very interesting conversation. But let's start that conversation by listening to TJ Dillashaw explain. The second camp around, I could not stay healthy. Um, first injury was I pinched this nerve in my foot doing a slider board and it would not, I mean, up until two days ago, I had to work out with shoes on, you know, um, I, my, it was like the worst thing I could have been dealing with. So I didn't get this, and then I tore my MCL on my right knee and hurt my left shoulder as well too to the whole camp. So it was a real rough camp and, um, you know, I didn't want to obviously talk about it because I didn't want to make no excuses or I just needed to get out there. It'd been too effing long. There was no way I was going to pull off from the fight. I mean, if, if you're TJ Dillashaw and you're dealing with some of these injuries throughout your camp, you already feel that you are at a disadvantage. But you, he understood the position that he was in. It kind of makes me think a little bit about, about the positions I was in playing football, being an undrafted free agent, knowing that you couldn't get injured in training camp. I remember there was a there, there was a scrimmage that I started at the gunner. Right. So I had all these reps on special teams. Then I was the first safety out. I made the first four tackles, knocked down a pass, and I ended up getting pulled because I can't breathe, right? I, I, and so I remember walking into the locker room and calling my mom, calling my wife, and being like, they're going to cut me. I'm an undrafted guy. I couldn't finish the scrimmage. This is going to be it for me. Can you explain a little bit, DC, of what a UFC or a fight training camp is like as compared to – a football training camp when we're preparing to play 16 games, hopefully 20 games, and you guys are focused on one opponent and one night. Well, you know, the fights are, are given to you months in advance, right? Especially when you're fighting at an elite level. So for me, it was always 12 weeks. Four-week pre-camp to get myself ready to train through an eight-week training camp, right? You harden the body. You start to prepare yourself for two-a-days and getting ready. But the injuries do happen because you're kicking, you're punching, you're fighting with all of your teammates. So what you have to do is really try to just manage things, especially when you're managing it with some of the best fighters in the world. But Ryan, there are no mm -hmm. guarantees. I've had to pull out of fights before, right? I pulled out of a Jones fight at UFC 197. 
I pulled out a fight against Rumble Johnson. One time we were supposed to fight in Vancouver because the injuries do happen. But I think that it's a matter of how much does it mean to that person? You know, we look at people right now having to pull out of things that mean so much. There are things that you can Mm -hmm. overcome and there are things that you can't overcome. I think the biggest story right now in sports is everything that's going on with Simone Biles and her mental health, right? She can't overcome that to compete. But what TJ Dillashaw was able to do was compartmentalize the injuries, compartmentalize uh, that, that desire to get back into the octagon. And there are things you can overcome. There are things that you can't overcome. And as I stated myself, I've had to pull out. We've seen at the highest of the highest level mm-hmm. where people just can't do it. TJ Dillashaw in this instance showed that his desire to get back out there was stronger than anything he went through. But unfortunately, Ryan, now it leads to him having to go under the knife now yes. to get all those injuries that he incurred to get taken care of. DC, I think that's what's even more impressive about TJ Dillashaw's outing, right? Uh, about his fight against Corey Sanhagen, understanding you're fighting an elite level fighter, a championship level fighter in Corey Sanhagen, understanding throughout training camp, you've had these injuries. You couldn't have the full camp that you needed to have. And you add that to coming off of a two year suspension. It makes me think about the difference between team sports and the individual sport that the UFC or that MMA or combat sports are. Because I know that if, if, if I can't play, I know that if I'm injured or if I, if I can't finish training camp, it not only affects me, but it affects my teammates. It affects my standing on the team. Whereas when you're a fighter, that's, that affects you individually. And obviously you have a camp and you have coaches, but if TJ Dillashaw misses this opportunity, or let's think to ourselves, if TJ Dillashaw goes out against Corey Sanhagen and one of those injuries is the reason why he loses the fight, he has to internalize that all on his own. And so to me, that's what's so much more difficult about training camps for fighters. You know that there's a limited amount of time to get ready for a particular fight. There's also a limited amount of times on how long your career will last. And so having to make that decision in that moment seems so difficult to me. And when it's different, because I knew if I missed the first game or if I missed the second game, it was a possibility I was going to play 13. I was going to play 14. We had an opportunity to go to a Super Bowl. It's so much different and finite when we're talking about the fight game. Well, it's the stresses, right? It's the stresses of getting there. That's one of the biggest things, you know, and, and I, I point back to the conversation I had with the kids the other day. In the buildup to McGregor, he said the whole fight camp, he wanted to fight him so badly, just worried about injuries, worried about making sure that everything stayed together on fight night. So it was like just, just really staying in the moment and staying safe enough because if you try to be too safe, then you're not prepared, and now you got real problems. But, Ryan... Saturday night, I'm at the UFC Apex. There are fans in there now. And TJ Mm -hmm. Dillashaw is the story. But, bro, it was not the only story coming out of Vegas on Saturday night. No, it was not, bro. The judging. The judging has become a real issue to the point that, Ryan, when I walk into the octagon to do the interviews, at times I'll get the decision. Like, Saturday I was getting the decisions, right, because I wanted to know. A lot of times mm-hmm. I tell my producers, I don't want to know because I want to be surprised. I don't want to stand in the wrong place and tip somebody off as to who won the fight. Right. So Saturday, I'm getting these decisions, and I'm having to keep my face straight because I just don't agree. 
I he don't felt agree like they were all. wrong. Yeah. I don't agree with the Barber decision. I don't believe with the Piva decision. And I got to be honest, RC, before I went out for the co-main event, Uriah Faber came over to the table and I go, you're going to need a gift in order to get this decision like you got earlier. And lo and behold, Piva won the fight. Best case he could have hoped for was a draw because he got so beat so badly in round number one. But again, nobody gave outside of judge number two, Sal Diamato. They gave Piva a 10-8 first round. Well, I'm sorry, Phillips, a 10-8 first round when Phillips utterly dominated Howland Piva. How in the world, how in the world are they not seeing this? So look, but look here. This is verdict, right? Global scorecard. One of the most well-respected judging platforms in all of mixed martial arts. And look at this. 10-8 round one, 9-6 Piva round two, 9-3 for Phillips. Piva won two, but when you overall judge a score, that first round by Kyla Phillips was so strong that you would think he had won the fight, but 27-9, 28-6. Take off the, the, the extra in your 28-28, a draw Ryan Clark. The yeah. judging now has gotten no. really, really bad, and nobody can feel good when you walk back to the center of the octagon in a very close fight. You know, and what's the crazy thing about that fight is Kyler Phillips was so dominant in the first round. I, I didn't even think the fight would actually go to decision. And then you see Piva kind of work his way in the second round. And then, and then the third round, it was a very close round, but I felt like Piva ended up winning that one too. I thought it was going to be a draw, but that's what the fight game is about. And that's why judging is so hard. If you take the entire 15 minutes, you say to yourself, Kyler Phillips was more effective. Kyler Phillips was more aggressive, but that's not how the fights are scored, DC. So if you have a situation where only one of the judges score that first round, which I believe was by far and easily a 10-8 round. If only one of the judges gives Phillips that 10-8 round, you end up with the decision that you got. Even more dramatic to me was the Macy Barber Miranda Maverick decision. And, and maybe you're and maybe you were on the, the other side of that. But round round one and two were so easily Miranda Maverick rounds, rounds that we shouldn't even have to discuss. The discuss and 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 for the fact that Macy Barber actually got one of those got um got one of those rounds on the scorecard was crazy to me and so now you put her in position to win this fight and that was one of those things I watched Macy Barber fight off of her back foot so much so that one of her coaches screams you actually have to try to hit her. When have we ever heard of that scream <laughs> from the corner of a fighter in and in the octagon? That never happens. And so M Macy Barber obviously turns it on in the third round. I agree with all of the judges that that, that should have been a round scored for her. But Miranda Maverick was robbed on this decision. And to me, when, you, when you're a fighter and you're an up-and-coming fighter like Maverick is, and you come out and you press the round one and through round two and you win those rounds, you deserve to have your hand raised after the fight. They don't get these fights back, DC. Yeah, you can run it back later. No. You can get a rematch. You can try to come back up the ranks, but you don't get that particular fight back and this is a huge deal to me this was a bad this one was bad it was bad in the the vein of Miranda Maverick deserved to win the fight seemed like rounds one and two were Miranda's and when you have a champion like Valentina Shevchenko you're trying to build momentum 
towards someone fighting her, right? Macy, while still a fantastic young fighter, I don't want her to think for any second that I'm crapping on her, but Miranda seemed to be the one that had the momentum. But now that momentum stumped for however long it is, Macy Barber now has to continue to build on what she just got. But we've seen some bad ones. And I think part of the reason is we've got some boxing judges calling these fights or judging these fights. Mm -hmm. They don't quite understand the grappling and the transition on the ground. They kind of act like you a little bit. But they're watching these fights and they don't wow, do it. Like, again? When it comes to when it comes listen, when it comes to the grappling at times, they're not giving <laughs> enough value to the takedowns, the top control, and everything else. And that's why they're judging the fights in the way that they're judging them. And you know, man, it's unfortunate. And I hope that at some point we can get former fighters, guys that have been in there, guys that know that when two athletes come together and there's a short right hand that lands that may be missed mm -hmm. by the blind eye, but they can see it because they've experienced it so many times. I think that is when we are going to see judging reach the level that it should for a sport that's as big as mixed martial arts and the UFC. No, I absolutely agree with that, DC. It's it's about experience. It's about understanding. There were times with with even me watching the fight and listening to some of the things that you guys were saying uh, on, on the broadcast is like, okay, how is this? How is this octagon control going to be seen? How is this? Whether it was a, a takedown that was defensed or one that was completed, how will that be scored against maybe some of the significant strikes that we saw on the feet? And I do believe that a level of expertise is needed in so many different sports. We have this conversation, whether it's it's football and you have officials who've never played who've never played the game, basketball officials who've never played the game or don't necessarily know exactly what they're looking for. All they can do is turn to a rule book. Sometimes the black and white of the rule book, rule book doesn't necessarily tell the true tale of the fight. And I think we saw that in a couple occasions this weekend and going forward. I don't want to see that again because these fighters do not get these opportunities back. You just never know. You could be cut from the UFC and actually want a fight that you lost on the scorecard that gets you out of your job. Well, you and I both know, Ryan, from experience, right? A lot is momentum. And when your momentum gets crushed, right, right we've seen football teams go on runs that teams that we didn't think were very good, right? But then the momentum starts to build, and the next thing you know, they're 6-1, and one, they're 7 they start to believe fighters are the same way. When they get it's hard for them to rebuild the momentum that they may have had before. And then you see them losing two, three in a row, looking at being cut, being in must-win situations. Now, let me tell you who's not in a must-win situation, Ryan. You heard that? You like the way I did that? You like the way I, I did that, that I like RC? Segue. Oh, nice segue. Do a little TV. He's like, oh, yeah, nice segue. Right? So who's not in a must-win is the champ, Jan Bohovic, as he fights Glover Teixeira in Abu Dhabi. Also, Piotr Jan and Aljamain Sterling rematch in Abu Dhabi. But the fight that I'm most hoping gets made in Abu Dhabi is RDA versus Islam Makhachev. Those guys want to fight. They're online talking trash to each other. They're telling each other, I want it like you want to bring it. How excited are you for those two title fights in Abu Dhabi, but also the idea that the third fight on the card could be Makashev versus RDA. I mean, that would create that. That would. We talked a little bit about 
not having pay-per-view or not having the the correct headliners when you make a fight card that has those three fights at the top of it that is big time obviously everyone wants to see islam makachev against some of the top competition and so if you bring him in there against rda right someone who has been a champion inside the octagon someone with that much experience that much toughness that seemingly wants this fight as much as islam makachev wants this fight those are the things we sign up for. Those are the fights I'm sitting at home on my couch, tweeting every other minute, hoping that DC calls somebody at the top of the UFC executive chain and says, put my dog's tweet on the screen. That is a fight that I'm sitting down and waiting for. And obviously, everybody wants to see Jan and Glover. Everyone can't wait to see Peter Jan have an opportunity to get his belt back from Aljo Sterling. But to have that fight, a up-and-comer and a UFC big-time veteran get an opportunity to do battle, those are the things that have made the UFC one of the most popular sports in the world, not just America. They have to make that happen. You know, the UFC makes the fights that people feel should happen. And honestly, RDA right now is the fight for Islam, right? Islam needs one of those mm -hmm. big-name guys. If he's going to truly make a run, if you remember back in the day, Habib beat RDA. That was one of his earliest big victories on his run to the championship. So for Islam mm -hmm. to fight a guy like Dos Anjos, a guy who looked phenomenal in his return to 155 against Paul Felder, a guy that has skills across the board, He's going to challenge Islam yeah. in ways that Islam's never been challenged. Islam Makashev, right? I support him, but I also understand that this is a very difficult task for him in Rafael Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos is nobody's stepping stone. Dos Anjos has a ton of attitude. No. He has a warrior's mentality, and he has a champion's mindset. And he feels he's going to beat Islam Makashev. But if you look at that, right, it'll be the third time that they've tried to make this fight. If this fight happens in Abu mm -hmm. Dhabi, massive platform as we head back to Fight Island, it'll be huge for Makashev to fight in the Middle East. You see what type of star Habib became over in the Middle East by going to Abu Dhabi. But then to be on a fight card with two championship fights, it couldn't be better. And I hope that the UFC can make this fight happen. Listen, RC, I'm not a guy that loves to travel. But every time they load up the charter, <laughs> every time they say we're going to fly you 18 hours to Abu Dhabi, I jump on because I know when they go to Abu Dhabi, the fight cards are going to be fantastic. And that's exactly what it's going to be when we head back at the end of October. And man, two title fights? Who could ask for anything better? Hey, that, that, that's exactly what we want. And that's it's a charter for you, though, D.C., that it's a private jet. So let's not act like you're sitting in the back <laughs> of economy on a plane that no, that that, uh, that other people can afford. This is going to be a totally different trip for you. And this is the one thing I'll say about the Islam uh, Makachev uh, Rafael Dos Anjos matchup. That's a fight that's exciting to me. That that's an opportunity to see Islam against one of the greats that I know is going to put pressure on him, that I know won't be scared, won't watch the film of Islam's wins and say, you know what, I can't attack him this way or I can't get it. I can't get close here. He's going to find the weaknesses, attack them and make Islam Makachev make adjustments. And that's what the fight game is about. That's what being a champion is about. And that's what people like me, the fans of this sport, want to see. Absolutely. And he's going to test Islam as we spoke about. Now, to be always right 
in the talk of the title picture. He's been a champion for a long time. He beat me twice, right? Stipe Miocic. Stipe is very yes. frustrated right now. Stipe says, why am I not getting my third fight? DC got it. DC got to fight me the yep. third time. Why am I not getting a chance to finish this trilogy with Francis Ngannou? And when Chatri Citradong, I think that's how you say his name, from 1FC, <laughs> tweets this, right? He doesn't think that he's going to get a comment from the greatest heavyweight in UFC history. Ryan, does Stipe have the right to be this upset after getting knocked out by Francis Ngannou in the last match? He absolutely does. You think about you, your trilogy with Stipe Miocic and how you were able to get rematches, how he was able to get a rematch after his loss. For a guy like Francis Ngannou, who had lost to Stipe Miocic early on in his career to get his opportunity to, to, to get his loss back, and now Stipe Miocic, the best heavyweight champion that we've ever had in the UFC, has to sit and wait, right? There, 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 there's an interim title that features Derek Lewis, and then we feel like that champion or that winner would get an, an opportunity at Francis Ngannou. Why wouldn't the next chance at the champion be Stipe Miocic? Why hasn't he earned that opportunity? And there are some weird things happen, happening in the UFC heavyweight division. Some of the matchups being made, some of the decisions being made, but there is none more head-scratching than Stipe Miocic not getting an opportunity to fight for the belt again. When you defended the belt or the championship as many times as he did when you beat some of the biggest names in the UFC when you beat some of the biggest names in the history of the heavyweight division you have earned that clout you should be walking in with your office t-shirt on like Aaron Rodgers did saying you know what I'm the de facto GM the de facto president you're gonna give me more money you're gonna give me an out after next year or I'm not coming Steve Miocic has earned the right to be Aaron Rodgers, and I wish Dana White and the UFC would treat him as such. You know, the only issue I have is in this situation, and there's an interim belt, why Stipe is not involved in the interim title fight at, in some capacity, right? To say that they wouldn't mm -hmm. just revisit the fight with Francis right away is a bit understandable because he got knocked out in round number two, but... To just not have him in an interim title situation seems a little bit uh, left field for me. But honestly, with the momentum that Derek Lewis has after we fought and with the mm -hmm. momentum that Cyril Gaon has, I understand how these two guys are in the number one contenders fight. Ryan, it's going to be a fantastic fight this weekend between Uriah Hall and Sean Strickland. Also... Bellator is finishing their Grand Prix. Grand Prix the Pitbull. Uh, Patricio yes. Pitbull versus AJ McKee. Going to be yeah. a fantastic fight. Big fight weekend this weekend, RC. What are you looking forward to as we head into Friday and Saturday? Listen, when, when you shot me the text about the Pitbull and AJ McKee fighting, I did a deep <laughs> dive into what was going on in Bellator. And, man, I am extremely excited about that. We have two dudes who have totally different personalities, different fight styles, both exciting. One is undefeated, McKee, seven. Other is a legend in, uh, in, in Pitbull. So for, to get an opportunity to see those guys do battle for the belt is going to be big time. But it's been fun, DC, man. It's been a great time. Hopefully my mentions won't go crazy like they did last week. They usually do. But not only are these guys fighting for the title, they're also fighting for a million dollars. Fantastic end to their Grand Prix. Strickland versus Uriah Hall is this weekend. Also, 
massive stakes in the UFC middleweight division. RC, always fun doing the show, my man. And I can't wait until we do it again next week. Until then, peace. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate.